The opinions voiced in this program are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advice offered through Northwest Quadrant Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to the Financial Focus Radio Show with your hosts, Tyler Simonis and Josh Finelli. Join us as we discuss markets, bring transparency to issues within the financial services industry, and bring honest, thoughtful analysis every week. Hey, everyone out there. Thanks for joining us on Financial Focus Radio. Uh, I'm your host, Josh Finelli. My usual co-host, Tyler Simonis, will be absent. Uh, the first couple segments will be joining me for the back half of the show. Hope everyone's having a Wonderful holiday weekend. Really hard to believe we're halfway through 2023. It's been a, a very quick one for me. I can't believe that we're already in the, in the throes of summer. But uh, it's been a really exciting uh, couple quarters in markets. And uh, Friday, uh, June 30th, represented the end of Q2. So uh, a lot happening and definitely a ton of news, uh, especially on the economic data front. Uh, over the last week. So has not been a quiet start uh, to the third quarter or quiet end of the second quarter here, but it never really is. Uh, we'll jump right into it. Um, for the week, small caps were up 4%. Uh, S&P 500 up about 2.5%. Uh, international developed markets up about 2.2%. Uh, the NASDAQ up just over 2%. And emerging markets, the laggard, uh, but still up about 1.1% for the week. So we had a uh, quite uh, quite a positive news and uh, quite a lot of positive news in the market. Um, oil was up two dollars this week uh, to seventy seventy a barrel. Gold uh, took a little bit of a round trip, ended up about up about fifty dollars uh, to nineteen twenty six an ounce, and yields uh, Treasury yields on the ten year up about a tenth of a percent to three point eight one. Got uh, perilously close to breaking four percent, but gave up a bunch of ground on Friday. Uh, to start the week, we had a, a blockbuster number and a huge jump in new home sales. And it turns out that uh, people still want to build and buy houses, especially new ones, uh, with interest rates at historic norms. <laughs> and it's been, of course, the last 14 years that people have been lulled into this sense of complacency, thinking that the demand for housing was somehow going to fall off a of a cliff because of higher rates, but uh, and Wall Street Journal had a great article this week highlighting uh, just the preference for new builds, especially uh, you know that is I think born by the younger generation's preference for new houses, but also uh, maybe the reticence of baby boomers and uh, older generation to want to embark on remodeling when uh, they have sufficient assets to go out and build a new house. So. Uh, that number just really kicked off the week in, in, a, in a great way. Um, we have the first I'll revisit on the economic data front. Uh, we got the final revision to first quarter GDP. Uh, it was revised significantly higher. The first read had been 1.2%. It turned out that economic growth in the first quarter uh, was ran at a 2% annualized pace. I don't know how to characterize it other than it was a scorcher of a number. And when you look down, whether it was exports, consumer spending, all of those figures were revised significantly higher. So uh, it sort of lends credence and gives the Fed more ammunition to say that, you know, interest rates aren't really in that restrictive of a territory. And uh, it's almost laughable to think uh, a year and a half ago where rates were. And I think the other thing it should finally put to bed is the notion that you know, you see, especially on the maybe the right side of the political spectrum, the idea that inflation is somehow this supply side driven phenomenon. It's a this is a phenomenon of aggregate demand because and what I mean by that is uh, when you look at consumer spending and how it relates to, you know, this idea that, of course, money creation there's this argument that money creation has somehow stimulated inflation. And I, w I will say that the fiscal side and, you know, the runaway fiscal spending is certainly contributing to it. Uh, but now that supply chains and all those things have normalized, it's clear that inflation is a demand function. And what I mean by that is services and everything else. You know, there is an insatiable demand for service spending, particularly. And, you know, that's a function of the demographic situation that we find ourselves in. And, you know, it 
Tyler likes to talk a lot about credit card debt being at record highs, but one of the things I wanted to talk about is when you look at credit card debt, it's only a seven-tenths of a percent of household net worth in aggregate, and that's significantly below where we were uh, in, in 2019. So, you know, household wealth and consumer spending as a percentage of household wealth is lower than where it was beginning the pandemic. And so I think that sort of speaks to this idea that the, the inflation problem is not a supply-side-driven phenomenon. It's a demand-side-driven phenomenon. And, you know, you have millennials entering their prime earning years competing with baby boomers who, uh, for the most part, are quite flush, uh, at least the ones that matter from an economic sense. And so that's, that's what's ultimately driving inflation. And I think that's a good segue into another piece of economic data we got this week was the Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, which, of course, is the Federal Reserve's uh, preferred method of measuring inflation. Uh, that read came in uh, down at 3.8% higher than a year ago. Uh, that's down from 4.3% uh, from the prior month. So the important part to note there is core was actually, the, the core part of that number uh, was actually elevated uh, relative to where it was the month prior. So the same phenomenon that we've been highlighting for really the last three or four months, which is this idea that uh, core services or core, core inflation is quite sticky and it's going to take higher rates to actually bring that down. But uh, consumer spending is up now for five straight months. Consumer confidence came out this week uh, higher than expectation. Uh, another uh, sort of data point buttressing this argument, of course, is initial unemployment claims were lower on the week. Uh, you go back and you look at where the labor market was in past cycles prior to a recession relative to where we are now. And, uh, you know, the data would pretty clearly indicate that from a labor market perspective, we're a year away from uh, real weakness uh, from a, f in labor. And so, you know, all of those point to uh, a further increase in the duration of the uncertainty surrounding this kind of this, you know, economic uh, correction, if you will. But, you know, when you try to revisit where uh, people thought we would be midway through the year, and I'll talk about that a lot in segment two when I sort of do a mid-year recap, but uh, there's been <laughs> no prognosticators that really, uh, you know, accurately called where we are. And it, it, bond yields, of course, uh, on, on this good news uh, moved higher. And uh, importantly, odds are fast approaching 100% now in markets that uh, the Federal Reserve raises uh, interest rates again in July. Uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell was over in Portugal this week for a uh, meeting with some of the central bank heads, Bank of England, uh, Bank of Japan, and Christine Lagarde out of the European Central Bank. But uh, importantly, what he said is, you know, he telegraphed and he's tried to be, I think, and what differentiates Jerome Powell from prior Fed chairs is that he has been trying to telegraph exactly what they're going to do, and he wants market expectation uh, to evolve because he wants to be transparent about their thought process, which, you know, he said that they're going to raise rates another two times this year, and I would take him at his word. And, uh, you know, I think at least as it relates to certain segments of the market that have done really well so far this year, uh, maybe they're – and we talked about this in the last few weeks, but uh, – you know, the speculative impulse is not going away. And uh, some of those stocks, their fundamental situation in terms of, you know, their cost of debt and cost of capital and inability to go to public markets to raise money, uh, they're maybe paying, playing chicken with the Fed and they don't believe them. And so, but what I think the Federal Reserve has been really successful in doing is uh, changing the perception of markets. And the idea that they're going to cut uh, interest rates before the end of 2023 is uh, slowly dissolving. And I think that's definitely what they want to see. And, you know, we've been on the higher for longer train for quite a while now. And uh, it seems to be that the market is sort of evolving to share that perception. But the, the gist of this is, is, you know, there's a lot of conflicting signals. Leading in economic indicators are now down for 13 straight months. But uh, the labor market is totally impervious. And the consumer uh, seems to be relatively impervious to these rate increases, which just tells you, uh, that, you know, restrictive wasn't so long ago. I mean, rates at 3% was not restrictive. It was, in fact, you know, a, an environment where the economy continued to grow pretty prolifically. And so uh, I think it's a week that sort of confirms what uh, anyone that's, I wouldn't say, you know, I just think that a lot of the downtrodden assessments 
uh, that emerged at the beginning of this year have, of course, been proven false. And it just tells you that we have a lot longer to go before we're sort of out of the woods. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next segment. Get your free one-hour retirement review. Meet with a Northwest Quadrant Wealth Management Investment Advisor today for free. It's our offer to you as a listener to the show. Give us a call today to schedule your portfolio review. 800-743-0988. Again, about the difference between top brands like Tempur-Pedic, Stearns & Foster, and the number one ranked Sealy Hybrid Mattress? Would you like to compare the sleep benefits of those top brands to all-natural mattress options like Posh & Lavish or even organic latex and two-sided mattresses? The sleep experts at Cascade Mattress & Bedroom Furniture have decades of experience in helping people sleep well. Their experience will help guide you through the maze of mattress styles, comfort, and support now available in town or online. In about an hour, Cascade Mattress takes the time to help you narrow it down to the best options within your budget. Find locally owned and operated Cascade Mattress and Bedroom Furniture in the Ben Factory stores right next to Nike and Columbia. Everyday value warehouse prices, Cascade Mattress. Online at CascadeMattress.com or call 541-678-REST. Big time inventory, big time savings. The 4th of July sales event is on now at every Kendall location in Bend and Prineville. With additional new vehicles in stock and more on the way, step up to something new and save big. You don't want to miss out on the massive Kendall discounts, plus special financing offers. Shop hundreds of new cars, trucks, and SUVs from Ford, Toyota, Volkswagen, and Mazda, plus luxury vehicles from Audi, BMW, Porsche, and Mercedes-Benz. Shop over 400 pre-owned vehicles, get a great deal, and the peace of mind of our Kendall Auto Protection Plan that's included with each qualified vehicle purchase. Save thousands during the Kendall 4th of July sales event. On now at every Kendall dealership in Bend and Prineville. Don't wait. These offers are only good through Wednesday, July 5th. The best deals always go fast. Stop by today or get started at KendallAutoGroup.com. Kendall, let's start something great. Wow, buddy, this place is gorgeous. Oh, I love living here at Wild Horse Mesa. It was just built in 2021, so it's got all the latest amenities with high-end finishes, plus AC, my own washer-dryer, pool access, fitness center, rec room, and a private patio. <laughs> all this on your salary? Wild Horse Mesa is more affordable than you think. Call the office and see what's available. Google Wild Horse Mesa Prineville for more information. Professionally managed by Norris and Stevens. Minutes from Prineville. New, beautiful, affordable Wild Horse Mesa. Attorney Joe Cordell. Divorce forces a father to focus on what's most important, his children. You may no longer be a husband, but you'll always be a dad. In the divorce process, this comes down to three key concerns. Physical custody, decision-making, as well as financial support. Each of these is important, and it's important that you choose a lawyer that cares as much about these issues as you do. For matters in Idaho, visit CordellCordell.com, 101 South Capitol Boulevard, Suite 500, Boise, Idaho, 83702. Connect to the Financial Focus Radio Show on YouTube or iTunes. Listen to past shows, get our bi-weekly e-news, and keep up to date on the market. You can also sign up for our e-newsletter on our website, northwestquadrantwealth.com. Let's get back to the show. Hey, everyone out there. Thanks for joining us on the second segment of Financial Focus Radio. Hope uh, people are going to be enjoying somewhat of an extended holiday weekend. It's kind of weird with Fourth of July on a Tuesday. We're open on Monday, but only for a short time. Market actually closes, I think, at uh, 1 Pacific on Monday. So a shortened trading week. And um, 
If you, as always, if you want to be part of the show, uh, please call us at 877-670-7117 and leave, leave us a voicemail. We'll do our best to answer your question on air. Uh, or email us at info at northwestquadrantwealth.com. Well, uh, I wanted to vis- visit a chart from uh, Joe Wang. Uh, he writes a blog called The Fed Guy, which uh, has some great economic data. He previously worked for the New York Fed, but... Uh, he showed he highlighted a chart this week that showed the Fed's recent monetary policy report showing how the labor par- labor shortage uh, is a partially a function of uh, early retirements and labor force participation by those that are 55 and uh, older is still notably below pre pre pandemic levels and it's actually starting to tail off. It doesn't look like it will recover. Uh, th- there's a clear distinction. Uh, uh, labor force participation by those aged 16 to 24 and those 25 to 54, prime working age, is actually above pre-pandemic levels. So you're seeing uh, more entrance into the labor market. But uh, those 55 and older, uh, it's now about 3% below the labor force participation rate uh, of 2019, and it's starting to actually trend lower. So I think that's maybe in part influenced by high asset prices, of course, uh, elevated 401k levels let people leave the labor force a little bit sooner because it maybe supports uh, additional income. But uh, it's certainly a trend that we're at the forefront of seeing in the advisory business as we watch people leave the labor force. And, you know, especially the last year, I've noticed more and more retirements at, say, 62 or 63 uh, than was definitely the case five years ago. And uh, it's a trend that we get to see firsthand. But, uh, you know, the Fed's current data is actually supporting what I noticed anecdotally. And uh, it's, you know, it's when you look at the aggregate numbers, it's somewhere between 10 and 12,000 people a day are leaving the labor force, which uh, to me is broadly representative of what's driving uh, wage push inflation. And that, uh, you know, that declining participation rate amongst workers that are highly reliable and, uh, you know, the type of worker that's accustomed to have been in the office with relatively high levels of productivity, uh, those participants are leaving the market, and it's fundamentally reshaping both productivity, labor productivity, uh, worker expectations as far as remote versus uh, in-office employment. And uh, it's one of the dynamics that I think we get the privilege to actually watch play out just because of where we are uh, as far as with, with the industry that we're in. But, uh, you know, June 30th, Friday, was actually the end of the second quarter. So, uh, believe it or not, we're halfway through 2023. Uh, summer has started. But I thought it would be a great time to sort of revisit, uh, do a mid-year recap. Uh, especially, I wanted to point out the forecasts. And these, these are year-end forecasts, so I want to acknowledge that there's six months to go. But uh, one of the now with the S&P 500, uh, basically, you know, close to 4,500 on the S&P, Dow at about 34,450. Uh, I wanted to revisit the year-end forecast from Wall Street. Uh, I highlighted at the beginning of the year the 2022 forecast. Of course, not a single major investment bank or money center bank uh, got the number right. And for the 2023 year-end forecasts, uh, the S&P 500 has now eclipsed uh, every bank's prediction, uh, except for Deutsche Bank over in Germany, uh, which had a year-end target of 4,500. So, you know, we're 45 points away, 1.5% or so away from Deutsche Bank's year-end target. But uh, the rest of of Wall Street, if you will, was uh, very, very pessimistic as it related to S&P 500 2023 returns. And, you know, at the beginning of 2023, uh, we pointed out, you know, the consensus almost never happens. And from our side of the table, it was quite clear that, you know, there was a major, major degree of pessimism. Uh, and, of course, it hasn't been realized. And so, you know, the S&P 500 now, as of through Friday, June 30th, was uh, up 14.5% year to date. Uh, the NASDAQ is up close to 30%, 29.9%. And that's the third best year or best start to the, or best start to the year for the NASDAQ ever. And I'll say, I mean, I concede, there's absolutely no way that I would have predicted at the beginning of 2022 that the NASDAQ would be up 30% year to date. And of course, we had another milestone on Friday. Uh, Apple's closing price uh, had a market capitalization of $3 trillion. Uh, It's quite astonishing, really. Uh, But when you go down and you look at asset class by asset class, 
uh, small caps, which dramatically outperformed through the first quarter um, up, up about 7.5% year-to-date, so doing half of what uh, the broader market did. Uh, corporate bonds are higher. The aggregate bond index is up about 2.5%. Corporate bonds are up 4 and a quarter. Uh, lots of markets that you would have not expected to have positive year-to-date returns through June 30th uh, dramatically outperforming expectation. And I think one of the, the themes that we try to ingrain to listeners on the show, of course, is always staying invested because no one really knows how this ends. And when you look at the accuracy rate of economic forecasters and uh, Wall Street strategists, of course, you know, they have the predictive value of a monkey throwing a dart at a board. And 2023 is totally emblematic of that theme. And 2022 was no different. And we highlighted that uh, at the beginning of the onset of this year. And uh, that's why you have to stay invested because of course, if you missed this run, you know, you're, and you're now you're, you're sitting on the fence of whether or not to buy back in, you dramatically harmed your returns on go forward basis for years and years and years. And depending on your age, you may never have the opportunity to recover from that. And, you know, of course, you know, we may revisit the lows of last September at some point in 2024 if a recession comes. But, you know, again, the predictive value of your own emotion and the predictive value of even, you know, these strategists making these predictions based on valuation and whatever else, no one has an accurate read on what's going to happen. And if you had asked almost anyone where we would be uh, on the S&P 500 at the beginning of this year, uh, only the most bullish of commentators would have uh, predicted that uh, we would be where we are. And so, uh, you know, and when you look at the data, it's probably supportive of further gains. And, you know, I, what I will say is uh, halfway through the year, it, you know, this market's always felt precarious so far this year because uh, sentiment diffuses so quickly now because of uh, the 24-7 me- connected media environment that we live in, that we switch back and forth and oscillate between fear and greed. Uh, and and I, know do, I know I do it internally <laughs> myself because from one week to the next, uh, my sentiment swings so wildly and I have to remind myself uh, in my mind's eye and just sit there and think, don't listen to what your emotions are telling you because they're invariably going to be wrong. And that's your lizard brain uh, trying to get you something to do something stupid that's inevitably going to undermine your ability to accumulate wealth uh, over time. And it, you know, it's just, just fascinating to revisit those uh, projections here six months into the year and realize that the, you know, the predictive value of Wall Street economists and strategists is about equivalent to an astrologist. There's just not a lot of validity to it. It's fun to talk about. Uh, but there, it's just... There's not a lot of substantive merit to what they're saying because no one has uh, any idea how this is going to end. But uh, fun to revisit stock returns through the first half of the year. And again, thanks for listening to the show. And if you want to be a part of the show or have a question, please call us at 877-670-7117. Sign up for our e-news today. Get the latest thoughts on the market every other week from Northwest Quadrant Wealth Management delivered right to your inbox. The short five to six minute video helps you keep up with the market. You can always watch past videos on YouTube or on NorthwestQuadrantWealth.com. every poem, beyond every song, inside every heart, and within every stitch are hidden stories. Join the Sisters Outdoor Quilt Show celebrating beauty of every hidden story at the 2023 Sisters Outdoor Quilt Show. Showcasing art from around the world, the Sisters Outdoor Quilt Show also builds community. If you're looking to build community and join the Sisters Outdoor Quilt Show, 
Sign up to volunteer at SOQS.org today. Disasters happen, and Oregon faces a range of disaster threats, including earthquakes, floods, and storms. You can prepare now by taking three important steps. Step one, contact your insurance company to make sure you have the right amounts and types of coverage. Step two, create a home inventory by taking photos or videos of your possessions in each room of your home. Step three, gather and make copies of important identifying and financial documents. Store them in the cloud or another secure location. These three actions can help you and your community be more resilient in the face of disaster. Be disaster ready by being insurance ready. Visit dfr.oregon.gov slash prepare now to learn how. This message brought to you by the Oregon Division of Financial Regulation, the Oregon Association of Broadcasters, and this station. Today I'll get a workout in at the fitness center. Tomorrow, maybe some rafting on the Deschutes River. Or I could go for a swim and spend the afternoon by the pool. It's pretty easy to fill your calendar when you live the life you love at Stonebriar. Walk the nature trails at Pilot Butte, or maybe give Tracy a call. We can go shopping in Bend on Saturday. Sunday, read a book on the deck. And after an active day outside, you come home to gorgeous resort-style one, two, or three-bedroom apartments with Cook's Kitchens, spacious bath, full-size washer and dryers, computer labs with free internet, covered parking, and... My fur babies. Pets allowed. Stonebriar is currently accepting applications. Their beautiful landscape grounds feature two clubhouses and are on Highway 20 near 27th and Bend. Google Stonebriar Apartments for details. Stonebriar, professionally managed by Norris and Stevens. Stonebriar Apartments. The best of resort living. The home of your dreams should have the best. DL Drury Custom Woodworks can make that happen. Robert and Susan Agley chose DL Drury to remodel their kitchen. Anybody can put in cabinets, but I guarantee if you're doing a remodel, there's going to be problems, and you want someone who is instantly responsive to that. That's what's important. I would recommend them. The quality, the number of styles that we could come up with with Leanne, she was so helpful. This is a, a waste and recycle cabinet, and it's a pull-out, and it's hands-free, so I just touch it with my knee, and the thing slides out. It made me crazy every time I use the sink. Your hands are dirty, they're filled with garbage, and what do you have to do? Reach under the cabinet and throw your stuff out. So when I saw this, I just went nuts. You know, whatever we do, we got to build it into the house. DL Drury Custom Woodworks, online at dldrury.com. That's D-R-U-R-Y, DL Drury, CCB number 43548. If it leaks, pops, drips, or bursts, call Severson Plumbing first. Did you know Severson Plumbing has plumbers who live in and service Redmond and Prineville? That means if you have a home or business that needs plumbing help, there is no extra travel fee. For emergencies, plan repairs, and remodeling, Severson is ready in Redmond and Prineville. Voted best plumber in Central Oregon two years running. If it leaks, pops, drips, or bursts, call Severson Plumbing first. You're listening to Financial Focus Radio Show, where you get honest and actionable advice every week from the partners at Northwest Quadrant Wealth Management. Remember, you can always listen to past shows on iTunes or find us on northwestquadrantwealth.com. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Uh, If you do want to be part of the program, if you have a question or a comment for the show, 877-670-7117. We promise we'll be will be on our best behavior when we answer your question or comment. Um, so there's a great book called The Creature from Gretch, uh, the Creature from Jekyll Island, and it's about the formation and the creation of the Federal Reserve. So one thing that I believe to be true, and I don't know how anybody else will disagree with this, that the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States, was never meant to play such an important role, or, you know, big role in the U.S. economy that it does today. Uh, you know, their their goals, their mandates were price stability and full employment, and those weren't always the goals of the central bank. You know, b- before, if you think about, um, you know, during the, right before the Great Depression, um, when J.P. Morgan essentially had to stop the run on banks, 
the Fed was sort it's like, well, maybe we could create a central bank in the United States and the this Fed can take the place and, and um create some stability and, and sort of be a backup. And you know, the Federal Reserve, just like any organization they're they're just trying to grow and be more important maybe it's not on purpose but that's what's happening just like you know unions are always trying to grow it's crazy to me but when you think about a union you know union theoretically shouldn't be always trying to get new members perpetually uh you know but they are always trying to grow and so um that's the fed i mean and it's never it it was never supposed to be such a huge important thing in in the United States. But here's where we are. And most people don't realize that the most powerful man in America isn't the president or the governor of whatever state. It's Jerome Powell, who's the chairman of the Federal Reserve. I mean, he has way more impact on your day-to-day life than any of those other people. I know people will argue with that, but then they don't know what they're talking about because they don't understand how the world works. And that's why they're mad. And that's why they drive around with flags and stuff. But it's, it's crazy to read about just how regionalized the U.S. banking system was pre-Federal Reserve. And we were just so fractured and there was all these different competing considerations well, based but it on made sense, geography right? because and the like, economics If of the you're country. in the Midwest and there's yeah. agriculture yeah. versus like the, you know, the steel and everything yeah, in the Northeast. It's really neat. Um, so here, here's what's true is that you know, everybody also like when they talk about the Fed, they think of them as like being these people, all knowing people that have all this information available and they're making decisions uh, that are the right decisions. And the lessons are that the Fed has consistently underestimated inflation in its presence. That's that's been a consistent theme. The Fed is nearly always behind the curve. They're always they've been reactive instead of proactive. Right. So, you know, the Fed talks about being proactive, but that's not what they are. They're they're always reactive. Uh, and the Fed Fed is terrible, awful at forecasting almost anything, including their own actions, right? So they're really bad at forecasting what's going to happen in the economy. I mean, they I could not believe when they said inflation was going to be transitory. It, it made, you, you know, you looked at what was happening and you said, guys, tell, explain to me what, if that's true, Jerome, then inflation is always transitory, <laughs> right? And so uh, it, it's just crazy to me that this, this entity made of these men and women who are really smart people, I mean, infinitely smarter than I would ever wish to be or ever hope to be. Um, but that doesn't mean they're good at policymaking um, because, you know, the biggest challenge, I think, is that they don't get out and they don't come to places like Bend, Oregon and see what's happening um, with economic activity. It's all on a spreadsheet and most of it they're reading about. And there's a that's very different than seeing the actual activity uh, in places like Bend, Oregon and Boise, Idaho and, you know, uh, Miami Beach and all of these places where people <laughs> – are making it rain, uh, and that is very inflationary. As long as, but whatever. Okay, let's tackle some email questions. This comes from Graham. Uh, I listen to your show often. You guys talk about asset allocation and diversification quite a bit. Uh, how do I know which asset classes I should be including in my asset allocation? That's a good question, Graham. Uh, well to consider what asset classes you should be including in your asset allocation, you know, that's usually a function of the purpose of your money and also your situation. But um, you should include the basics are large cap U.S. stocks, mid cap U.S. stocks, small cap stocks, uh, developed international stocks, emerging markets, and depending on your appetite for diversification, maybe a little allocation to real estate. And that's... REITs, yeah. Yeah, real estate investment trusts, publicly traded ones. Um, but that's kind of the the gist of that in itself will pretty much capture uh, every in publicly traded stock that you need to own. And that's just on the equity side of your al- allocation. So. Josh is right. That's your, that's your, you know, when you think about how do I allocate my stock money, um, we like to be very specific about getting those allocations to those asset classes. Um, you can do the, you can get those allocations um, with a few funds really at Vanguard, you know, they have total market index, they have the total international, and then, you know, you can um, get, get a, a bond index if you like, and, and really get it accomplished. Not very well with three funds, but you can get all those asset classes in there. Um, we like to be more specific. And so that's, a, it's a good question, Graham. Um, you know, there is, so Josh and I have what we think is right 
uh, as an asset allocation for our clients and our client base. But it doesn't mean we're, you know, we're the end all be all. Uh, we like to think that sometimes, but only our dogs think that that's true. And so um, if you ask our wives, I'm sure that they would tell you that we could be done a lot better. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's like if you think about David Swenson, who has run the Yale endowment and has really good long term numbers. I mean, 15 percent annualized numbers for the Yale endowment. His asset allocation looks very different, but but that's because it can because he has uh, longer you know that money is used very differently. He has a lot more money of it money, so he has more access to to, to certain alternative asset classes like Timberland and certain things like that that we don't. But um, asset you know Josh is right in the basics are, are those asset classes on the stock side, and then on the bond side in a normalized interest rate environment, and that's not where we are now. But a normalized interest rate environment, you'd want to have some bonds that you took some credit risk, meaning they're lower credit quality or or, or you know, invest in the bottom part of the investment grade, corporate bonds, uh, and you might want to own some muni bonds, um, you, you know, some treasuries. Uh, but right now, on, on our asset allocation, we just own very short duration U.S. Treasury bonds because as the as the bond market changes and the interest rate environment changes, the credit market changes, we will change our asset allocation on the bond side of things. But right now, we don't feel like uh, that's the time to do it, and so. Graham, the important thing that you're thinking about it, and you know, there's lots of different places you can go and get an idea about different asset classes and how they react in different environments. Um, and so, you know, BlackRock's asset allocation is going to be different than Vanguard's asset allocation, than Schwab. Every, all of those companies are going to have different ideas about asset allocation. But Josh is right in that the basics are you going to want to have those tools, the large cap U.S., mid cap U.S., small cap U.S., developed international uh, and then, you know, some small allocations is probably emerging markets and real publicly traded real estate investment trusts. Some people add commodities to that. We don't happen to be in that camp because we don't think the risk reward story is very good. Um, and so, you know, there are lots of different asset classes out there. And then the thing to know, Graham, is to understand how they behave. And so what's happened over the last say 20 years, 15 years, uh, whether you have an advisor or you're doing it yourself, is asset allocation has sort of gone away. And, and people might have 10 different funds in their uh, in their portfolio, but they really these ten funds own the same stocks, and so nobody you know they're all just usually U.S. large caps allocation. And so when we Josh and I do a free retirement view, and people come into our office and we look at their accounts, it's like you have all these funds, but they all own the same companies, and so which can be good in certain times. Well, it, but it, it, but it's not accomplishing what what you think it's accomplishing exactly. in that d diversification. And so yes, it worked great when U.S. large cap growth stocks were going up, but if that is the next decade, that's not going to be the case because the cost of capital goes up and, and cash flow matters and, and these boring businesses that have been left for dead uh, start to, to matter again. You're not going to have exposure to these names. And you know when you look at the world today and you look at the United States today from a valuation perspective, small cap stocks, relatively large cap, are the cheapest they've ever been. Same with mid cap. And most of you out there listening to us right now don't have explicit exposure to these asset classes. Uh, and that can be okay if, you're, if you understand that, but um, you're probably giving up future return uh, by, by avoiding these asset classes. So Graham, that, that is, you're right. We do talk about diversification a lot and asset allocation, um, but it, it's important to know, okay, well, if those things are so important, how do I accomplish that? And uh, we, we do it a certain way, but that doesn't mean we're the end all be all. Obviously, we we think that our way of doing it is right, but but obviously David Swenson would say you guys are missing out. Uh, and relative to his performance, he'd be right. <laughs> uh, all right, if you would like to sign up for our e-newsletter, Josh and I do a video in the middle and end of every month. We did one last week. Go to our website, northwestquadrantwealth.com. Send us an email. Just let us know you'd like to be added to our e-newsletter list. When we come back, uh, we're going to go through an estate planning guide, some certain sort of uh, 500 or 50,000 feet on what you should think about when you're thinking about your estate plan. Stick around. Get your free one-hour retirement review. Meet with a Northwest Quadrant Wealth Management Investment Advisor today for free. It's our offer to you as a listener to the show. Give us a call today to schedule your portfolio review. 800-743-0988. Again, 
Michael Hernandez, a medical provider at One Peak Medical Group, talking about why some men are reluctant to seek medical care. Society has trained men to be the ones to bring home the bacon and be the workhorses and do all these things. A lot of the times they just try to think that everything's okay and man up and, and deal with it. But there are certain things that do need medical attention and do need medical care. A lot of men are more predisposed to certain things than, than women are. And it's definitely, especially if it's there's a genetic component there with family history of certain things, having more preventative care at an earlier age to avoid developing some of these predisposed genetic things from family is it's very important. If you feel like something's not right, come in. There's nothing wrong with being checked out, having a physical exam, and just staying up to date on your own health. Michael Hernandez, physician's assistant at One Peak Medical. Book your appointment online at onepeakmedical.com, covered by most insurance companies. We love it here, and we think you will too. Welcome to Alpine Meadows. Beautifully kept landscaping, Alpine Meadows has one-bedroom apartments and two- and three-bedroom townhomes that include washer and dryer, beautiful decks, patios, and designer kitchens. Alpine Meadows is conveniently located next to the Dallas, California Highway and minutes away from Orchard Park's nature trails, a place proud to call home. Google Alpine Meadows townhomes, professionally managed by Norris and Stevens. You enjoy the quiet life, but... You like being close to the action. Living that fits you is at Mountain Glen Apartments, located five minutes away from the Bend River Promenade and downtown area. Mountain Glen's units feature designer oak cabinets, and their two- and three-bedroom units come with washer and dryer hookups. Relax with mountain views from your patio or deck. Mountain Glen Apartments Bend, corner of Butler Market and Boyd Acres Road. Professionally managed by Norris and Stevens. These packages of Sherry's Hazel Cream don't look like milk. Why is my herd so worked up? Oh, silly bull, each package comes with two pre-measured pods filled with nutritious paste. One pod makes a quart of milk for those of us who can't or don't do dairy. Well, that makes sense. You can also make it as cream or buttermilk. Sherry's Hazel Cream Dairy-Free Alternative does it all. Sherry'sHazelCream.com. It's all the moo. And none of the cow. Attorney Joe Cordell. Divorce forces a father to focus on what's most important, his children. You may no longer be a husband, but you'll always be a dad. In the divorce process, this comes down to three key concerns. Physical custody, decision-making, as well as financial support. Each of these is important, and it's important that you choose a lawyer that cares as much about these issues as you do. For matters in Idaho, visit CordellCordell.com, 101 South Capitol Boulevard, Suite 500, Boise, Idaho, 83702. Thank you for joining Financial Focus Radio Show. Honest, transparent analysis brought to you every week by Tyler Simonis and Josh Finelli. Call the show anytime at 877-670-7117. We'll try to answer your question on the air in the following weeks. Now, back to the team from Northwest Quadrant Wealth Management. Welcome back. I am part of said team, Tyler Simonis, and that guy over there, he's Josh Finelli. The one and only ladies, Josh Finelli. We're partners at Northwest Quadrant Wealth Management. I guess men, too. Uh, Northwest Quadrant Wealth Management here in Bend. And if, uh, if you want to sign up for our e-newsletter, uh, you can go to our website. That's uh, northwestquadrantwealth.com. Just send us an email. Say, add me to your e-newsletter list, and we'll get you on that list. You just uh, you in the, On the 15th and 30th every month, we'll get a short five- or six-minute video. Uh, from us, talk or Josh and I are talking about what's going on in the capital markets, and most importantly for our clients, how it affects their portfolios. This comes from Bloomberg again. In in the year August 2000, Fortune magazine published 10 stocks to last the next decade. Uh, by December of 2012, so 12 years later, a portfolio containing those 10 stocks had lost 75% of its value. <laughs> and this is fortune, right? There's some sharp cookies that work at fortune. Again, another reason that if the so-called experts can't be picking winners, why do you think you are going to be so good at it either? So, it, it, you know, it, it's really, really hard. It doesn't seem like it should be hard, but it is really, really hard to pick stocks successfully. Most stocks have 
awful track records over time. Uh, and then so this sort of reiterates that um, all economists agree that predicting a stock's price is tough, but only 59% of Americans agree with that statement. So, you know, most of you out there think that uh, picking winning stocks and, and knowing what the direction of the market is relatively easy to see. Uh, we know that that's not true. Josh and I know uh, doing what we do that, that that it's not true. Um, you know, we had uh, in the middle of June toward the ends of June when the market was down, uh, the S&P was down 20 and the NASDAQ was down almost 30% on a year-to-date basis. Worst start to the year in a long, long time. We had a lot of people saying to us that the market was going to go down another 20% by the end of summer. Here we are close to the end of summer and markets have rallied significantly. And our phones are dead. Yeah, and, and those people that the thought that the end of the world was imminent, guess what? They're gone. And, I, you know, it's so hard for us to not call them and say, well, what happened? Now that stocks are up, shouldn't we go to cash? Like, this is when we should go to cash, right? And, you know, it's like, why weren't you calling us last December when the market wasn't at an all-time high and saying, you know, I think markets are going to go down? No, you waited for markets to go down 20%, and then you called. And so don't be one of those people. You cannot time markets. It's time in the markets rather than trying to time the markets. It's just how you'll be successful. But you should none of you should be out there picking individual stocks. Uh, if you do it over time, the S&P is going to trounce you. And I know you can say, I'm going to buy Amazon, I'm going to buy Apple, I'm going to buy Google. Those are all unbelievably great businesses. They've created wealth like almost nothing ever has. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're going to beat the S&P 500 over the rest of your investing lifetime. Statistically, the chances of that happening are close to zero. Okay, let's talk about taxable investment accounts. So, you know, this is one of those things that Josh and I take for granted, uh, knowing that these things exist. Uh, but when we talk to them, uh, when we talk about them with uh, prospective clients or clients and, and, and adding money to them or opening them and, and funding them, um, it's as if we're splitting the atom. So, Josh, first, just explain. I know it sounds basic, but explain uh, to everybody what a taxable investment account is. And then we can talk about why we think they're so great. Taxable investment account is just like it sounds. It's just essentially a bank account for stocks. And most people out there listening, you may already have one. And you probably call it or reference it as your brokerage account. And uh, that's just a place that, you know, it's not, you're not getting tax deferred growth like you would in an IRA and you're not being, you're not able to uh, reduce your taxable income via uh, contributions. It's just a place where you are parking money and you can own the exact same investments in a taxable account uh, that you buy in your retirement accounts. Yeah. So, I mean, the advantage is, so, so the wealthiest people in the world uh, this is where most of their money is. So they either have it in the trust, but if you think about, you know, Jeff Bezos or or, or uh, Bill Gates or all these kids, they own most of their shares in the company in a taxable form. It's not in a tax deferred form because there are no contribution limits. You can put a hundred billion dollars in a taxable account, uh, which it, is its greatest advantage. Is the extreme flexibility that you're offered, and uh, it's. You know, that money is liquid in two days if you're buying something that settles on the New York Stock Exchange. So, so it's the other reason, you know, every, they, the Bernie Sanders of the world talk about, Elizabeth Warren talk about why the wealthy pay the lowest, such low tax rates. You know, they say, well, you know, these guys are paying 15 or 20 percent taxes when their secretary is paying 25 percent. And it's because the, this is how most of these people get their where they get their money. And the the tax the taxation of these accounts is at a much more Which I think rate is a, than I, ordinary income. I think is a great segue to one of the other primary advantages of this type of account is it offers near tax free compounding if you plan carefully. So, you know, if you're like us and you're using exchange traded funds that don't pay capital gains each year, uh, you're essentially going to have very minimal tax liability associated with this account, provided you're not realizing actively realizing big gains. So, of course, I max out my retirement uh, contributions every year uh, dutifully, but, you know, I can save more. Thankfully, I'm thankful enough that I, I can save more above that. And so I save way more in this kind of account that's a joint account for my wife and I than I do anywhere else. And like Josh said, you have 
full liquidity. I have access to this money at any time. In fact, I have a checkbook on my uh, taxable investment account. I, I don't have to wait till I'm 59 and a half. If a business opportunity comes up, I can use it for that. Uh, and again, remember, I'm paying capital gains rate taxes, which is a lower tax rate than my income tax rate. And I'm just paying it on the gain, not the total amount, like when you take money out of your IRA. So there's a ton of flexibility that go along in owning a taxable investment account. And then most importantly, and this is the big one, um, when, because we've been doing this so long, when you get to retirement, and let's say you have a, a client with a $2 million IRA and you have a client with a $2 million taxable account, the person with a $2 million taxable account is in much better shape because their tax liability to get at their money is so much less than the person taking money out of the IRA. So if you take money out of a traditional IRA, you're paying ordinary income tax on the whole amount. So if you take out 10000 bucks and you live in the state of Oregon, uh, most likely you're going to net about 7500 after taxes, seven or 7500 If you take the ten, same $10,000 out of a uh, taxable account, you can do some tax planning that your tax liability might be negligible at best. The reason we're such big proponents is because you're able to control where your marginal dollar, that next dollar comes from. And so when you have those big one-time expenses, uh, you don't need to be rating your IRA above your required minimum distribution to access that money. So it lowers your overall cost of capital, gives you that big amount of flexibility. And we see the psychological impact of a higher net after-tax distribution and then that it leads to people actually wanting to spend their own money. We see this unnatural aversion to spending from a qualified account uh, because of the tax liability associated with distributions. The financial services industry, financial advisors, CPAs, want everybody to put as much money and have all their money in tax-deferred accounts. Uh, we're, we're just not as bigger proponents of that because when you get to retirement, like just said, the accessibility of these taxable investment accounts is so much better and you can control the taxes. So as long as you invest in tax-efficient investments, which is what you should be doing uh, in these kind of accounts, uh, you should be aggressively saving in a taxable investment account. All right, if you want to be part of the program, you have a question or comment, give us a call, 877-670-7117. Or you can always send us an email by going to our website, northwestquadrantwealth.com. Stick around. We'll be right back. Sign up for our e-news today. Get the latest thoughts on the market every other week from Northwest Quadrant Wealth Management delivered right to your inbox. The short five to six minute video helps you keep up with the market. You can always watch past videos on northwestquadrantwealth.com. 